Hi, this is Josh Banner, and you're listening to The Invitation. In this public conversation on November 13 of 2019, I was joined by Sister Diane Zerfus. She is the coordinator for the Center of Spirituality at the Dominican Center at Marywood as well as Chuck DeGrote, who is the Professor of Pastoral Care and Christian Spirituality at Western Theological Seminary. This conversation was the second installment in an ongoing series of public conversations, all to be hosted by the Dominican Center. And this collaboration between The Invitation and the Dominican Center began last January with Ruth Haley Barton. That conversation was broken into two different segments that you can listen to on The Invitation podcast website or also through the Dominican Center's website as well. The next offerings in this conversation will be with spiritual director and author Sharon Garlow-Brown and A.J. Sherrill the lead pastor at Mars Hill Church here in Granville, Michigan. Both of these two good people have written and have led retreats and congregations across the United States and abroad in moving people deeper into God, and they will be great contributors to this ongoing conversation. And then there will be a further conversation. It's a one-on-one on April 15th with my friend Fred Bonson. He is a permaculture grower, a Thomas Merton enthusiast and filmmaker. He also is an extensive author who now serves as the director of the Food, Health, and Ecological Wellbeing Program at Wake Forest Divinity School in North Carolina. All of these public conversations, starting with Ruth and now this episode here with Sister Diane and Chuck, continuing with Sharon and AJ in February, and then Fred Bonson in April. This is one long conversation that might even extend into next year and the years beyond. And this is a long conversation in the tradition and in the practice of spiritual direction on the topic of spiritual direction and contemplative spirituality, specifically within the context of the local church. I'm asking all contributors and all those in the audience who join on the mics for everyone to bring their best questions and creative ideas to bear on how contemplation and the gift of spiritual direction do and do not arise out of the local church and then how they can or how they might fail to serve the local church in turn. Sister Diane Zerfus and Sister Carmelita Schweitzer trained me in spiritual direction. I finished that cohort practicum in the spring of 2015 before beginning my doctoral studies in spiritual direction at Fuller Seminary in the fall of 2016. I'm not only a Protestant, but I believe the invitation is specifically aimed at translating contemplative spirituality from the Catholic context where I was trained into the Protestant communities that I serve. 
since my training in spiritual direction was largely influenced by St. Ignatius, St. John of the Cross, and St. Teresa of Avila, as well as many other Catholic sources, I discerned that it would be good for me to further my studies at Fuller Seminary, a Protestant school, so I could integrate back to my Protestant heritage. But then it turned out that the three years of my coursework through Fuller were based mainly on Ignatius and the desert spirituality of the 3rd and 4th centuries, as well as large portions from the Eastern Orthodox tradition, specifically the Philokalia, and then Dallas Willard, the main and sole contribution from the Protestant tradition. Today, I'm excited to be learning of the work of Kyle Strobel and others like Tom Schwanda, who find a wealth of resources within the Protestant church. And there's much to mine from the Puritans, Anglicans, Jonathan Edwards, Charles and John Wesley, Calvin and other reformers. However, the challenge that still remains for us is to come to these writers and thinkers with questions about transformative prayer, questions about spiritual listening, silence, and the inner movements of our love for God. That is the scope of what the Invitation Podcast, the retreats, and the classes that I offer. That is what the Invitation's about, and this is what the Dominican Center is about as well. So it's a joy to collaborate with the Dominican Center. I give great thanks to Sister Diane specifically, and Margarita Solis Deal, the director there, that they gave us a platform on a space to bring these good people together so that we can listen and learn together. So this specific conversation begins with myself, Sister Diane, and Chuck DeGroote. Each are offering some opening thoughts and questions. We then talk amongst ourselves in response to our opening presentations. But I'm happy to say that more than half of this conversation is framed around the questions and comments of those in the audience who joined us that day. So here I begin our conversation by offering my opening thoughts on what I believe to be the vital need for contemplative spirituality for the Church. Amen. Relatively small in the context of the sizable decline in church attendance that's reported by research organizations like Gallup and Pew. Thank you. Contemplative prayer and spiritual direction are often perceived as advanced practices and out of the reach of the local church. Yet it is fair to say that a church that does not in some way engage these deeper reservoirs of God, this church will inevitably lose its ability to reach our culture and serve God-hungry people. So the purpose of this conversation is to consider how these deeper prayer practices are necessary for the nourishment and flourishing of the church. So in this conversation, I'm asking, is it fair to say that a church that does not in some way engage these deeper reservoirs of God, this church will inevitably lose its ability to reach our culture and serve God-hungry people? The implications here are that a church where soul care is not fundamental to the vocation of a pastor 
that church will eventually become irrelevant. So I'm asking that as a question for our conversation here. I, I discern that doesn't mean I'm right. The satirical website, the Babylonian Bee, familiar with that, offers an overstatement that gets at this conundrum. This is like a headline on a, on a newspaper. Church that believes exactly what the world believes, not sure why no one bothers to come to church anymore. So that might be an overstatement. So let's rephrase that on the second page there. <clears throat> we could say maybe church that's not providing access to a dynamic, interactive relationship with God, not sure why none of its people are being transformed into Christ-likeness. So the challenges that are before us in this question, how do these deeper practices engage a local parish? Contemplative prayer and spiritual direction are often perceived as advanced practices and out of the reach of the local church. It's a real, true difficulty. The church is by nature what we might define as a first half of life institution necessarily nurtures faith conformity through a sense of belonging to a community of faith and a practice of the basic faith practices. We could say that that's really what a church is for. Just like I have three younger kids and I'm trying to help them figure out how to conform to my expectations and how they do talk to me and their mother how they don't talk to me and their mother, how to tie your shoes and get your pants on and go to school, come back with your, your lunchbox. So that's love enabled to help them conform to that. And what is that commensurate for faith practice? The local church can and should be good at that. The trouble is that those who seek spiritual direction and those who access contemplative spirituality are in some way moving beyond this kind of conformity, moving away from their communities. This is why practices of solitude and silence of moving away from communities are so vital to contemplation. And this is a journey to identify my own unique prayer style. I don't pray the way my mom or dad do. I don't pray the way my pastor does. I don't pray the way my mentor does. I have a different spirituality, and that is by nature a journey of bewilderment, decentering, of confusion. So observing this distance between what we might say first and second halves of life, the main question here could be, can and should the local church nurture contemplative spirituality? And there's a whole long list of like, can and should? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> what does that look like? And then secondary, the, a question that's dear to my heart, might not be your question, is if contemplative spirituality is nurtured in the context of local church, can this lead to church renewal? Is there a potential ripple effect in a local community that might ripple out into our communities. What I'm seeing happen in the prison, as I share the stories through the podcast and other teachings and writings, is there a ripple effect where the sanity of 
meeting my deepest broken self in this very advanced way. Not everybody's going to come into the prison with me. But is there yet some way that those stories of faith are going to help my neighbors to transform and to inform a culture that is right now dislocated and broken? So that's the way that I center that. And as we turn to you, Sister, I, what I've, I've given them freedom to jump in with anything. This does not have to be. Uh, any of you familiar with the Midrashim, the Jewish tradition of Midrash? So the, the great thing about the Midrash is that the rabbi might start with a particular question. And where that conversation goes is not linear. At the end, you might wonder, where, how do we get here? I, this has nothing to do with where we began. The way that they understand is the generative power of the questions that we started this. So I'm excited if this goes anywhere, because if we don't finish it this time, we might talk about it in January or in March or in April. So, mm -hmm. Sister Diane, I turn it over to you. As I began my reflection of um, what I might say, um, I didn't think I needed to do any um, list of why the world is so chaotic and filled with anxiety. Um, I think that's obvious to us wherever we look. Um, and even looking at the weather, um, how did we get this much snow in November? We weren't ready for it. Psych psychically, we're not ready for it. And um, in previous generations, centuries, when people were filled with fear and anxiety, they turned to faith and church to answer those questions and to give them direction of how to cope and how to live. But people today have access to all kinds of technology and voices, and, and part of it is they think they should be able to answer those questions themselves. And some parts of it, as Josh referred in the beginning, um, the church is very good at answering children's questions. But perhaps we're not so good at answering questions for adult believers. So <clears throat> as I looked at this, it seemed to me that what the world needs and what disciples of Jesus need at this time is a deeper awareness of a contemplative approach to faith and to life. And by this, I mean a prayer, a prayer experience that is about a personal relationship with God. To have intimate conversations with my friend Jesus, my friend God, my friend the Spirit. That um, God is interested in me and God knows I'm interested in God. And so, how does this come about? And I think the image that comes to me is that for most of us, we think we are so unworthy. Why would God be interested? Why would God care? And God is so much beyond, you know, what I could imagine or capture or, and how do I have a prayerful, personal conversation when the gap is so great? So I think churches are asked to take a look at that sense of unworthiness and remind us that when the human being was first created, God said, this is good. This is very good. And we should still hear that echo about ourselves. 
And we know our sinfulness and that we're not perfect. But just to remember that God, the Creator, looks at us with those eyes of love. And on the other hand, God is not so far away that that imminent God, that God of presence, the God who walks with us day after day, um, the God who cries with the world, the God who calls forth our best selves so that we can live in the way that Jesus provided for us. So we can see that God is at work in you know, the book of Exodus, we see God freeing the Israelites from Egypt, that place, that tight place of slavery. And we hear Jesus saying, I call you friends. So that gap between us, the miserable, and God, the transcendent, can be brought closer together. So how do we go about doing this, particularly as a church? And so I want to be clear that these are not suggestions only for the pastor. They are suggestions for all of us who have a role to play in what it means to be church. And so my first suggestion is about worship. You know, why do we gather on a Sunday morning to praise God? That's part of what it means to be church. So can it be peaceful, slower pace, more inclusive, and include silence? We think our competition is you know, that technology that just bombards us, but most people need to draw a breath. Let us pray, and you jump into the prayer. And it's like, oh, I can't even keep up with the prayer. Let us pray and take a breath that says, this prayer is important to me, and I know it's important to God. And a sense of hospitality. What does our welcome look like to these people who are coming hoping to find a word that will get them through the next week. So part of that is as those who are pastoring, those who are leading different groups and activities, do we model well that we are contemplative people? That we can lead prayer experiences, we can plant seeds, and we have um, kind of that um, marketing that says, we're a good advertising for our product. Okay, are we prayerful? Are we patient? Oh, God knows. Um, can we reach out to the stranger? Are we kind? Are we humorous? Can we use images and language that captures the heart? One other aspect of that then is besides the, the worship and the outreach of the church, do we offer places for small groups or for the community as, and as a large um, gathering that we practice some of these prayer experiences weekly to make them available to people? 
The two examples um, that we do here on campus, on Wednesdays at noon, we do a Lexio Divina, attuning our ear to the holy reading that we can hear a word from the Spirit. And we also, twice a month, do a gathering on Tuesdays at noon on centering prayer. Most people don't feel centered at all. And so to be able to kind of lean in to this God of love, to surrender our busyness and say, nothing I could do for the next 20 minutes is as important as being, being with God. So to let um, opportunities become part of who we are and what we offer. And that's really good for people who like groups. But we also need to offer resources and education, which is really more experience. It's the practice rather than just the, um, the outline of how this works for individuals. So that I can't come at noon on Wednesday, but can I do this at home? I don't have um, the opportunity because I choose to worship 30 miles away from where I live. So I can't come to all these meetings at night, but that doesn't mean that I can't participate. And so to look for um, examples of Lexio and centering prayer, um, but particularly I would encourage the practice of the examen, which says, what happened today? Everybody has a day. What happened today? And prayerfully, can I have a grateful heart to tell God I'm happy I didn't end up in the ditch with the snowy roads, but I'm also sorry for not responding as well as I could have to a particular situation. So the, the examen helps us in a short real little time of reflect, reflection of what was this day? Because our days go so fast, we can't remember what we had for lunch. So the, lex, the examen says, take a moment to remember this day before it's gone and thank God for the good that happened and recognize <clears throat> our repentance for where we were not bright shining stars. And then asking for a little help for tomorrow. The thing that's particularly, um, for those of us who might not journal or, it helps us remember where we are in the journey. And oh, this thing that's coming tomorrow, that little prayer of help me get through tomorrow can lower my own anxiety of what will I have to face tomorrow. So there are wonderful opportunities like that, which we can work with groups, and we can also make resources available for individuals. And then lastly, um, the practice of spiritual direction. Um, of all the things, all the classes I've taken, of all the um, uh, books that I've read, um, retreats that I've been on, um, it is spiritual direction that I feel has really formed me as an individual before God. And it's not that um, I've compiled a sense of wisdom, but there are little pieces 
that directors have said to me that I've kind of grabbed a hold of. And I recognize that I have very quick thoughts. And it's really helpful to have to speak aloud a response to questions and, um, and the sense of what's happening in my life. And have someone sit with me and say, where do you see God in that? What's inviting you into a deeper relationship with God? Where were you last year at this time? And where are you hoping to go? So it's, it's a, a part of looking at our journey and recognizing that God is at work. And if I can be contemplative, quiet, peaceful, take time, then I have a chance of living a good life and drawing closer to this God who created me in love and who journeys with me in love. Ta-da, that's my part. <laughs> hmm. Thank you. Well, thank you for being here. You could be, uh, you could be watching impeachment hearings right now, <laughs> but we're grateful that you showed up here with us. Uh, and in a sense, you're here pursuing depth. And I think more than anything else, that's what I long to see in the church nowadays, people who uh, long to pursue depth, uh, reflection in a world that's really reactive. Uh, and so that's a little bit about what we're, we're about right here and right now. Um, I don't know if you know this, but I worked in the prison system too for almost 15 years. I was in the world of church planting. Uh, so yeah, kind of yeah, a different kind of prison system. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and just by way of autobiography, I was, I was one of those kind of theologically certain seminary students back in the mid-90s who was hard-charging and had all the answers until I took a course with a, uh, a theologian named Alistair McGrath back in 1997. And McGrath was going through a kind of midlife crisis at the time and kept talking about the dark night of the soul and inviting us to read mystics like St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross, and I thought, you're, you're supposed to be a Christian, Dr. McGrath, and you're having us read these, these Catholics? I was so offended. Uh, but that disorienting experience was uh, one of the more significant experiences of my life. And I came back from that, and I entered into a sort of a hybrid mental health counseling spiritual direction program uh, 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago now that really changed the direction of my life. And so I often say that I wear multiple hats. I'm a, I'm a professor now for the last six years, but I'm a therapist, I'm a spiritual director, I'm a retreat leader, and I love working at the intersection of these different spaces. Um, I think what's core, I, I didn't write notes, I, I just wanted to be present to where we were today, but I think what has been so core to my work and my ministry in the church and now in the seminary is the reality that God is at the center, the very center of our lives. Augustine said, God, you are more near to me than I am to myself. And think about that. People are busy. They're scattered. They're fragmented. I served in Orlando. I served in San Francisco and now in Holland, Michigan. And people are kind of the same. <laughs> 
Wherever you go, they're busy, they're fragmented, they're scattered, they're all over the place. I'm that way too. Always looking for God out there. It's never enough. So I look for it in food and drink and sex and experiences, whatever the case may be. And this reality that God is at the very center has been life-changing for me. I, I've been primarily Protestant contexts, and we believe that uh, God is a God of grace that justified us, and, and we're supposed to be living from this place of grace. But what I find in most of the churches that I've been in, evangelical churches that I've been in, is that people don't live from that space of grace. They're climbing the ladder up to God. Sort of like trying to prove to God that God made the right decision choosing them and justifying them and offering grace to them. Let me prove to you for the rest of my life and it's like a ladder climbing exercise. Thomas Merton once said, you, you climb the ladder only to realize that you've propped it up against the wrong wall. And so people are tired and they're exhausted, they're fragmented, they're overwhelmed. They feel like they've pursued any number of different spiritual paths and listened to any number of sermons and read any number of different books, but they don't feel any more connected to God than they than they did when they first started. What's the next book? What's the next program? Maybe Josh is going to write it. Maybe it's the Invitation Podcast. Um, God is more near to me than I am to myself. That radically simple idea, I think, is, is profoundly transformative. Uh, as I went about pastoring over uh, almost 20 years, I was always trying to think of the new thing. What class could I teach? What program could I offer? What brilliant thing could I say in spiritual direction? And more often than not, I've, I've come to realize that I just need to get out of the way. Uh, we give people more obstacles than we, I think we do help them to realize that God is already at the center. Uh, when I was in San Francisco pastoring, uh, one of the things we decided to do was eliminate a lot of the activity, a lot of the programs to, to get at this. And we recognize that people are in a variety of different stages of life with God. Um, we broke it down into three stages that we, we discovered through the writings of Walter Brueggemann. Orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. And we realized that we did a lot with orientation. We did a lot of building into them. Uh, discipling them, giving them tools, giving them resources, giving them information. But we weren't really there in the seasons of disorientation. You know those times when it seems like the lights go out and God is far, far away? And more often than not, people experience those seasons as seasons of, of like, God must not love me, or I must not have enough faith. And I'm I think I'm convinced, and this is kind of what I'll conclude with, I think I'm more and more convinced that uh, the spaces that we need to move into nowadays, um, the spaces that we need to open people to are the spaces of disorientation. That we're living in a fractured and fragmented world, that, that people are bombarded with all kinds of competing messages, that they're anxious and they're overwhelmed, and they don't quite know what to do with it, uh, so they become more active. <laughs> and maybe the invitation is to slow down and to be present to the God who meets us when we finally, once and for all, stop. Say, maybe you're here. Maybe you never left. Maybe it's I who left. <laughs> maybe it's I who've been looking for you here and there and everywhere else. All sorts of different activities. Maybe you're to be found in the silence, in the dark nights. 
So I've been working with churches over the last number of years, helping them to, to find ways and spaces in worship and in other, other, other things that churches do. Uh, how do we create these spaces for people? It's not just in spiritual direction sessions. It's not just in counseling sessions. How do we create space in worship? How do we slow down? What does it look like for the church to stop competing with the technological world that we live in and simply create space for people to sit with their questions? Uh, and so uh, I'd, lo I'd love to engage a conversation around that, but I think it's, I think it's gonna be pretty revolutionary for the church because we, uh, I, I mean, I spent a long time as a pastor and I think we're, we're pretty addicted to our old ways of doing things. Uh, I think it's going to take more deconstruction over the next 5, 10, or 15 years within the church rather than big new ideas uh, in order to get there. And I think we need people like you and people like us who are comfortable in places of silence and darkness and pain to, to be with people and to sit with people in the church in those kinds of spaces. Um, so I'm really thankful that you're here and curious about this. Yeah. Thanks, Chuck. So what I'm first want to reflect on as I'm listening to you too is again just gratitude that I get to be here with you that I get to be here with all of you that there is some evidence in this room that there is a hunger for depth and for practice and and as you turn Chuck in, in thinking about how these folks might go out to affect the ripple effects in your respective places. Mm. What I'm hearing uh, Sister Diane saying is the, the thing that really impressed me was it really comes down to if you want to see contemplation grow, you have to be a contemplative. Mm. <laughs> That's what I hear you saying. You have to be someone who's doing this and becoming this. We can't just talk about this as an idea. We actually have to become this. And I, I hear you saying that by the nature of the practice, there is that growth mm -hmm. just by doing. It. And then I hear you saying very practically, let's just position some opportunities here and there for people to to test the waters, to jump in, to practice with with you. And that sounds very ordinary and not very sexy. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a new new uh, um, grand proposal uh, this is just let's do life with God mm -hmm. and let's create resources and opportunity for others to yeah. come and dive in the, and so for for future what I hear you saying is on that journey we need to allow people and maybe especially I'm wondering um, this might be something that you could both comment on how do we wave the flag or announce that these practices are disorienting on purpose mm -hmm. How do we attract people to something that's going to screw with them? <laughs> so, and, and really, and that's the question. I was a worship leader for most of my adult life. And the question as a, as a liturgist is, do you explain to people in the middle of the liturgy, this is what we're doing here? You know, we're going to go to the table, and this is why we go to the table, and yeah. this is why we say this prayer. Or do you just do the prayer, and you just let the practice teach itself. I'm at this, this tension here. Some of us might be called to different postures on that, but if we do what you're saying, become a contemplative and do the practices, um, it's, it just seems like some people um, 
might be stuck in some of those practices. And maybe for some just saying, hey, you know what? This is going to be decentering. There's a lot more happening here than you. This, this could actually destroy your life if you come and practice yeah. silence. <laughs> so can you speak to me about how do we invite people to the practices in a way that also does announce this is, this is dangerous? Well, I always think that the first place you look is at Jesus. And um, Jesus... Why would you say that? I know. It's <laughs> always the safe place to begin. <laughs> but it's not safe. And um, looking at um, Jesus said, you know, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And that's as much warning as he gave. That he was going to turn everything upside down. And, and he did that through stories. Mm. Through, you know, teaching on the mountainsides. Through walking, you know, the dusty trails of the time in which he lived. So I don't think it's a matter of warning as much as it is of um, modeling why we need this. So um, if I'm you know, disoriented and discombobulated, um, I'm going to look around and see not who looks like they have it together, but who looks like they can cope, who looks like this is not um, tearing them apart in such a way that they can't move anymore. And that, um, that image of um, why, you know, so much of, of how are we going to teach the next generation. I love the line that said, we are one generation away from forgetting Jesus, but we have always been one generation away. Mm-hmm. And um, as we look at um, uh, church and church attendance, what does that mean for people? And where are they finding, or have they given up of, of finding anything that will answer their questions, their worries? Um, and that's why I think being a contemplative says, I don't know the answers, but I know the person. Hmm. And that's what I'm going to lean into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the story of Scripture is of a God who comes more near and near and near in Jesus than by the Spirit and now dwells intimately with us and is infinitely available to us, right? And so the Father says to the elder son, I am always with you and everything I have is yours. I'm always with you and everything I have is yours. God is infinitely available to us, uh, but we're not present to it. So, but, but we have, as, as people who are involved in the church, we've got, we've got resources available to us right here and right now. So for instance, uh, we're coming upon the season of Advent. And if I were to ask you to describe Advent in one word, what would you say? Just any of you. Preparation. What's that? Preparation. Preparation. Darkness. Darkness. Expectation. Expectation. Anticipation. Anticipation. Arrival. Arrival. Longing. Longing. Waiting. Now, this comes during another season that, that, uh, that prepares us in a different kind of way. <laughs> you know, you start to see advertisements pop up on the TV, and we begin to think about, well, I've got gifts to buy for the grandkids and the kids and the nieces and the nephews and the friends. And, the, and, and how does that season, in one word, feel to you? <laughs> Shop. Shop. <laughs> Pressure. Stress. Anxiety. Stress. 
frantic. So here we have the intersection of, of two cultures in a sense, right? Uh, one invites us to wait, to long with open hands. Uh, another invites us into anxiety and franticness and dissipation and, and uh, feeling like it's never enough. And you, you, see, you see how that works? So I feel like uh, the church has so many resources available to So when you talk about the liturgy and do I say something before someone comes to the table, I think, well, I think every week when people come to the table, they're coming with hands full. I've been grasping here and here and here and here. And what I want to say to them is you have an opportunity to open your hands. You've been grasping. Now let go. God is available to you in the, in the bread, in the cup. Come and receive what God has for you. And so this is like, you know, spiritual direction isn't just a one hour a week, one on one kind of relationship. It's the invitation to see God right here and right now, wherever we are, because God is infinitely available. So you're reminding me of the gift for those of you that are trying to think in practical ways of how to introduce some of these practices to a community. Um, just using the Holy Days, Advent, is a, a way that I, I've, in the Protestant experience, we've been uh, trying to catch up with things like Lent and Advent, and there still is a lot to be taught um, about what we're doing here. For example, with Lent, um, it's not just about giving up chocolate or wine. <laughs> yeah. there's, a, there's a whole lot more. So, yeah. so just yeah. other resources, other teaching, other inroads. So somebody might be confused about contemplative prayer or spiritual direction in a local parish. But then if you said, hey, if you want to come and practice this discipline with us mm -hmm. in a small group, uh, it could be weekly throughout Advent or Lent, mm -hmm. or it could even be daily. It could be something that you offer to a small group to say, hey, do you want to focus on this? If you've got small groups or house churches, thank you, sir. Then how do we then um, put these things around when we're already by the church calendar on, mm -hmm. on point to be a little more intentional about this? So take advantage of that mm -hmm. in those moments. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot more that we could just chit chat, but I, I'm sitting here feeling really jealous to be especially helpful to you. Mm. So um, I, I want you to know, it's a little disclaimer, that if you are, are a little shy about this, just know that your question might be very significant to someone else here or another listener. You might think, oh, this is not that great of a question, but as you bring whatever it is, uh, please step up and, and, and engage this. I totally respect that if, if it's something, especially if it's something that might require you to tell a little narrative about your community, you, you don't want that documented out of here. I totally respect that. But um, what, we, what we develop here will hopefully set the stage for this growing long-term conversation. So please, if you have anything to add, questions, comments to where we've been going, I invite your contributions now. Mm. I have a 21-year-old daughter, 21 daughter who is faith-filled and has stopped going to church mm. because she's completely annoyed with the church and what the church is about <coughs> and what mm. isn't about. And I have a prayer group of moms that I pray with regularly. And one day I was praying for my daughter and I mentioned this and the, mo the mom I was praying with's response was, well, that's all right, because the church as we know it is becoming irrelevant. Mm -hmm. 
and all your daughter actually needs is a couple of people to hold her accountable. She just needs a faith community in that respect because what we know to be church is mm-hmm. on its way out. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was, on the one hand, so encouraging, <laughs> and on the other hand, a bit alarming. And I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Thank you. Well, I, I always like to say God's been doing this for a long time uh, and is very comfortable with churches closing, mm-hmm. movements ending. I mean, think about the churches in the book of Revelation. You, if you show up on Sunday, they're probably not going to be open uh, this coming Sunday. It, it's just this is the, the way it goes. Uh, and there are historical movements, too, where, where church seems to wane and, and influence and I think God is infinitely secure and holds de- multiple deaths and resurrections throughout history. And I do think we're at a point in history where there's some dying going on, you know. And, and what I worry about just a little bit is that uh, we may be more anxious than God is about this, you know. Yeah. What, what can we do to keep the church from dying? We may yeah. need to come up with something new and even better and greater and maybe it's about me and I need to preach better and I need to... Rather than, I wrote a blog series on this, I think, somewhere at some time, stewarding the death of the church. You know, how, how do we steward uh, a, a proper dying? That may not need, mean that the church doors close, but how do we listen well and attend to the dying and trust that God is in the dying and the rising? Um, so I, I'm anxious because I've, I've got a daughter in college and a daughter who's about to go to college, and they're pretty ambivalent about faith. Um, but, but it's not just about going to church, right? I, I want them to know Jesus intimately at the very center and core of their, their being. Um, and I, so I think, I, I think it requires uh, those of us in, the, in this world, seminary professors, pastors, to have some good hard conversations about how, how church is going to have to die. And I know I'm being kind of vague mm-hmm. when I say this, and maybe I'll just let you clear this up. But... Uh, <laughs> In, instead of, of, of moving in the direction of our anxiety, holding on tightly and, and blaming others or blaming culture for it, I think we need to participate in the movement of the Spirit, even in, in the dying, and know that God is in charge even of that. Uh, is that too vague or paradoxical? Or? I, I think the, the piece of your question that I think is really wonderful is that she has a couple of friends mm-hmm. who will hold her accountable. And I think perhaps the new image of church is being that friend, of Mm. providing opportunities um, to have people to share the journey with. And some of the things that church has done, um, providing worship space, we might find other ways to do that. Mm. Um, the, The social justice and the action that obviously the world will still need Um, we can find other ways of providing that. But what what church, I think, means that um, uh, sense of um, the people of God um, at work together, uh, I think it's the together part that we've lost. Um, That the, the church has become so much an institution with a lot of um, financial and insurance and um, buildings and 
And is that really what Jesus had in mind? I doubt it. Um, but what Jesus is interested in is each individual and the Christian insight is, but you don't have to do this alone. Mm -hmm. So I think in, in your recognition of your daughter finding friends, mm -hmm. I think that was the insight of the early church. Mm -hmm. These are people who will journey with me and share my strong belief mm -hmm. that um, Jesus rose from the dead mm -hmm. and I will too. Mm -hmm. In the Protestant uh, conversation, we could look at this in, in one type in terms of denominations and the spread of churches and thinking about those doors closing. It's going to look different in the Catholic context, and we could just name that in terms of there's all kinds of political questions within the church and the strife that whether or not it's closing necessarily buildings or things like that, and I know that's happening, it's also cutting off certain fellowship, certain peace, certain love. So, so there's, there's different ways, and I want to also give permission for us to think about what that decline might look like. Um, when I think about some of the vocabulary for this, I think of uh, one of my f favorite authors is Dallas Willard, and he talks about the difference between the treasure and the vessel. Mm. So we need a vessel to be able to contain this. It's inevitable. Faith becomes practiced it becomes enfleshed. We eventually need places to stay warm, to gather. So that eventually becomes a building and where we conduct these services. The, the trouble, what Willard says, and I tend to agree with what he says, is that we've spent so much time tending to the vessel at the expense of the, of the treasure. Hmm. And that's squarely the reason why I, I am hoping this conversation will, will inspire us all to think about hmm. and return to the treasure and if we attend to the treasure, so I do think that the church uh, will fall apart in various ways and it might get worse before it gets better. Mm. Um, I am jealous to believe, however, in a historical witness of Christ in institutions and in things like, so it might just look very different. So when I think about that nourishment of the vessel for that long term with whatever that looks like, that's the reason why I'm in a prison, because it's probably going to be from the brokenhearted. Mm. who are picking up the pieces and, and reforming this, where we're brought back to the bare bones. And within that, the brokenhearted, no, the least of these, is this question of the, of the mystical presence of God. So I think of Karl Rahner, as I read, as a Protestant into another tradition, and he basically just says that if, if we don't return to a kind of mysticism, we won't have a church. That's a restatement of what I opened this conversation with. So my question as a parent would be then, are, are you accessing the divine? Are you really engaging yeah. God? Or the, my trouble with the, the language of accountability is that it ends up just becoming a kind of a performance-based uh, engagement. Um, I would be just curious as I could help my kids nurture that. Are you really confessing sin? Are you talking about your weakness? Are you finding God arise out of your deepest desires? What's actually happening in that group? Or are you just kind of getting together and... That, that would be um, some of those follow-up questions as a pastor more than a spiritual director. Somebody else have a question? Come on over. Thanks. Uh, my question uh, came to mind after something that Sister Diane said um, about uh, worship practices. I think that's how you opened your, your um, part of the presentation. And I felt myself... Um, uh, 
longing for um, silence specifically as a spiritual practice uh, to occur within worship. And then at the same time felt myself get anxious about mm. um, uh, the value of silence, um, justifying the value of silence in a corporate worship experience. So why is it, um, if I'm attending a worship service, why can't I just do silence on my own? Why should we do it in a group? And as uh, folks who are charged with the responsibility of curating what gets included and excluded from the worship service, um, how would you go about talking to a congregation about the value of doing silence together and beyond the small group in, in the Sunday morning worship or Sunday evening worship? That's my question. It's Thanks. a great question. And I think um, it's, it's that sense of the group, the power of the community. Mm. So when I can't pray, when nothing's happening, <clears throat> and I feel the energy surrounding me, um, it gives me a sense of um, I'm not alone in this process. You know, um, as a, a member of a religious community, We've been praying for a while, and um, and we have books <laughs> to uh, to lead us in that. And about I don't know, 12, 15 years ago, um, we put we chose um, to begin our congregational meetings with doing 20 minutes of contemplative silence. And there's a little chime at the beginning to tell us it's time to do this. And then, and when we first started, some people who are very comfortable with this, oh, 20 minutes, it was so short. And other people are going, oh my goodness, it went on forever. Uh, but, but it's become part of our practice now that that's how we begin. And for people who might have been resistant, of course, no one's ever going to say that they're resistant to silent prayer. Um, but for people who might have thought it was a waste of time, what we have experienced is there's more patience because, you know, that Heather is going to talk forever. She always has a question. We wait for her to ask her question. Mm -hmm. Or um, uh, the person who um, uh, is more hesitant, we, give, we have time for that. It's changed, I think, the inner dynamics of the community. And, um, and to recognize that we found some new technology, you know, so the people in New Mexico and Montana can participate. And someone says, well, you know, you're kind of wasting the money to do 20 minutes of silence with all of this technology. But what it says is you in New Mexico and Montana are important to us. And we want you to be part of our prayerfulness. I, I think that um, we've taken and the average person, it's the hour of worship, and, and they literally mean 60 minutes. So how, what are you gonna do with that, and how are you going to use it? And to find ways um, to fit it, everything does not have to be filled. And that, I think, is part of our modern culture. You know, it, it's like, uh, I'm ha happy to see that you don't all have your phones out and doing all of your texting and... Um, Make sure, let's see if anybody all clear. Yeah, clear. <laughs> but but there's a sense of there's no time for anything anymore. Yeah. Everything has to be filled in, and I think that's what can make us more contemplative people. Um, that shared experience, mm -hmm. and also looking at like something like Lexio Divina, mm -hmm. 
You know, I can get my word by myself, but the energy of bodies sitting next to each other who are taking this seriously, that's, it's just a wonderful way of doing that. And then what we have done um, for group Lexio is to add a little, this is so Dominican, share the fruits of your contemplation mm. with the group. And, you know, this person who had this word that came and all of a sudden you hear what, you know, the, the, the contemplative presence that this person had with this word. So the individual and God being drawn together mm. because of the power of this word. And then I, who might not have gotten much, get to hear what God was doing around the room. And that's, I think, the encouragement that shared group experiences, especially with silence, can help us do. Can I throw one quick thing in on that? Mm -hmm. Just a practical thing. When I go around and preach in different places, I notice more and more that there are like these sheets that they give you with exact times of like, have you seen this where like, it, like down to the minute, and like even for the, the sermon and the songs and the, and when I, I first got on staff out in San Francisco, there was this practice of after you're done preaching, pray for at least 30 seconds so that there could be a transition for the band to come up. And uh, I said, what if we just ask people to take a deep breath and to be quiet and to notice what might be stirring within? And we moved to that practice and what do you know, people loved it. <laughs> Wow, that's that's like the the only minute in my week that I'm silent. Yep. Yeah. That's awesome. The other uh, thought in terms of corporate practices uh, is is good. Thanks, Chuck. The other th thought I was reminded um, AJ Cheryl is going to be here in January uh, as he became the lead pastor of Mars Hill a couple of years ago. One of the things that he's nurtured with his staff is that every day I can't remember what time it is. It may be three o'clock. There's like a bell that rings in the offices and they do, I don't know if it's just a minute. I, I can't remember if it's a minute or two. Is anybody from Mars, how long is it? Um, at 12. And at three? Yeah, just a bell and it's just a time for everybody, whatever you're doing, the whole staff is invited just to pause, to gather yourself and to pray as you're able. And uh, that's just a way, and, and I asked his, how's the staff, because they have a large staff, how, how are they adapting? He's like, some people like it more than others, but just to start to, to work this into the, the vocabulary, this is just what we do. And um, maybe uh, then eventually you could share, um, more people have questions. Mm. Why are we doing that again? And, and then we get to teach and mm. re-invite them back to the practice, so, mm. question. Um. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I guess um, my question is, how would this conversation be different if, if we were in a room full of Quakers? Um, the reason being is, is I've sojourned with the Quakers, and um, oftentimes when I don't go to my own church, I will drive across town for an hour of silence with the Quakers. <laughs> and you're driving across town 
for an hour of silence with mm-hmm. the Quakers. I mean, so when we're talking about, you know, people conceiving of silence as yeah. being nothing, it, 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 it isn't. It's, it's mm-hmm. a practice. The other thing is that when we talk about, and I know this is true for some people, that, um, and it's, it's here, that, uh, that in some ways we're moving beyond conformity and moving away from community. Actually, I find that when people engage in contemplative practices, they long for community. Mm-hmm. And it isn't weird to drive across town for an hour of silence with the Quakers. Like, that's super duper fun, you know? And, uh, or that they come for contemplative prayer here, or mm-hmm. Lexio Divina, and that what depth in spiritual practice does is it leads us to community, but it leads us to uh, want a community with more integrity, right? Uh, with more depth. So it's, it's my understanding, at least, that um, if, if young people nowadays are going to church at all, that, that the one place that things are growing is an even song in the Episcopal Church. Now, that's not a lot of silence, but that's a lot of, you know, smells and bells, and, and it does give that contemplative space. And so um, I, I think we have a way in which that we sometimes talk about this as if there's this uh, movement toward prayer which is away from community, and I'm not sure that that's altogether accurate. The other thing I, I'd raise is, is the issue of generational stuff. Um, I've uh, I, I've engaged in teaching uh, body prayer and contemplative practices to families and to children, and children get silence. Mm. I mean, they get it, and um, oftentimes, I mean, uh, parents start coming to church because their children are asking them profound questions about God. And so I I wonder about that, too. So it's the individual community thing, and it's also the intergenerational thing I'd love to hear you talk about. Well, she's uh, pointing to something that Sister and I talked about when we were planning this, that, yes, there are definitely ways that teenagers, uh, we think about the rise of mindfulness in our culture and how that's being taught in schools, public schools. So um, we could then talk about um, the other uses of movement within within these, uh, using that as a both uh, for therapy as well as this is just part of what we do in, in a in a classroom of learning is we learn how to silence ourselves. So you're you're reminding me of I taught uh, sixth grade at a Episcopal school for three years and. Every day we had daily chapel. We'd walk over and the rules were silence as soon as you walked in there. And it was wonderful as a teacher to have. So, um, so when I describe these, these troubles, it's, it's so possible to overpaint the, the, the trouble and to forget that there's certain things that I understand God has designed in us. We don't have to go through massive suffering to practice mm-hmm. contemplation and, and all that. So thank you for reminding us. And that reminds me a, a little bit, Chuck, about how you've, in other conversations, defined contemplation. You've tried to bring it down to a lower, more approachable tier about just presentness. Mm-hmm. Can you speak a little bit more about how you would offer contemplative prayer you know, in a much more approachable way to people, for, for kids, for families, for groups? Yeah, sometimes I just say being present to the God who's already present to you, <laughs> you know. Uh, it, 
The problem is, Rowan Williams, I think, said, the problem is 99.9% .9 of the time we're absent. You know, God is always present. So, so it's not some hocus pocus kind of thing. Um, rub the, what's the, the, what's the thing where the genie comes out of? The lamp. The lamp, the lamp. yeah. The lamp. It's not about rubbing the lamp. <sighs> oh, hey, God. You're, oh, you're there already. Oh, surprise. oh yeah. <laughs> surprise. Oh, you're smiling at me. You've been pursuing me even in my sleep. You've been pursuing me even as I've been babbling about during this time. You know, you're there. And, it, and it's that simple. I, and I think what we're finding, because I'm a therapist too, what we're finding with, with young people is there's, there's a lot of anxiety. Like this and th this, all this stuff, you know, there's just a lot of anxiety. And so it's inviting them. And by the way, this, this is actually leading to neural biological changes in the brains of our children and our teenagers, right? Uh, and so much so that their, their spirit, in one sense, their being is less available to, ha, ah, you're there, God? Because there's always got to be an on button. Um, and so some of this is simply inviting um, our, our kids to, to simple acts of presence, to breathing. My daughter saw a therapist last year and she said, how come I learned in therapy? things I'd never learned in church. Like just to breathe, just to be centered. Um, and I feel so much more calm when I'm there. And like it, God, God is there, it doesn't mean God isn't in there, but you're just more available to God. I think it is really simple. We make it too complicated. With that reality of perhaps if we had been teaching contemplative practices to our children who do really love them, um, that they might not have to walk away from church mm. to find peace. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All this is coming together for me to recollect for my own family. I have a, a two-year-old, a seven and a nine-year-old. My nine-year-old is a little agnostic <laughs> who, uh, when I pray with him, he'll say, I don't know if I believe in that, which I say is fine, you know, um, but I'm trying to, as a father, figure out how to nurture opportunities like this. So um, for this Advent, to bring some of this together, for this Advent, uh, I uh, realized that one of my instructors, I'm in a doctoral program in spiritual direction, one of the practice facilitators is a woman named Lacey Finn Borgo. For those of you that are interested, she's got a, a series of books called Good Dirt that follow the church calendar with, with contemplative practices for kids and families to do all this together. Mm -hmm. So I just realized as I talk with my wife when we wrestle with how to nurture faith, we don't go to a church that has all the programming for lots of kids stuff and we don't go to that on purpose because we don't know how to go to a church like that. That says more, probably more to, about me. Um, but what we're, we're realizing as we grew up in some of these evangelical practices, we, we did have parents that, I mean, her mom used to uh, give her um, candy bars for memorizing scripture, right? And we're not going to do that. So, so if we're not going to do that, what, what else are we doing? And I want to go right there to, to, because I'm a director and I want to really nurture a sense of how to reach my son to talk, because he's very spiritual. Mm. He's just not sure about church yet. So I'm going to give this a shot and use again this Advent as an, an occasion we've done the um, Advent calendars before, so I can just say, hey guys, this is what we're gonna do this year and, and see how that goes. So thank you for reminding us, yeah. Yeah, thanks. I just had a question for you. Um, as you're working with people and you're inviting people to come to God and 
learn to be present with him, maybe for the first time that they've tried mm-hmm. to listen, maybe for the first time that they've even had hope that they could hear something from the Lord. How, how do you set them up for that without um, expectation that the Lord, you, you know, that they're going to – how do you work with that so that there's not a very personal disappointment thinking this doesn't work for me or I'm doing something wrong or I know it's a long process, but I'd love to hear how you guys work with people. Great question. Yeah. I think part of the reality is um, to offer a banquet of possibilities. So if this particular prayer practice is not helpful for you, um, then as, as the um, writers say, let it lie fallow for another time or another place. And, um, uh, and I think all of us, when we look at our own um, spiritual stories, um, you know, when I discovered whatever, oh, it was just so filled with life and I loved it. Um, and then I feel like kind of it had its time and it's now time for me to look for something new. And, and we all do that. Mm. So why is it so surprising to us that we do it in our spiritual lives? Mm. So I, I think um, your, my favorite word that you used was invitation. Mm. And I think that's always how we offer um, with no guarantees. This might not be helpful for you, but don't worry, we'll find something else. Mm. And, um, and I think we, you know, with all of the psychological studies that we've done, we all know that we're different personalities and um, we have different um, uh, neurons connecting. And, and so let's see what is helpful for you at this time. And, and then when they find, you know, that right note that just resonates within them, oh, the joy that comes with that. And then that gives them hope that there will be other things that can do that as well. That's good. Well, I just say I, this is one place where the Enneagram has been particularly helpful in, in my work because there are certain patterns and habits and energies that we live out of that that uh, are ways of self-protection and avoidance. And so if I'm doing spiritual direction with an Enneagram 5 and they say, well, my practice is just to get some quiet time alone with, you know, with a reading, I'm going to be like, yeah, I'm not sure about that. That sounds really easy for you, you know. Um, I, I want practices that invite deeper connection to God and deeper connection to, to the world. Um, Practices that open and don't close, right? And so, you know, I'm a, I'm a four and it's never enough. You know, it's never enough. And so practices that invite me to, to a deep sense of God's satisfaction and delight right here and right now when there's, there's always some other new thing or book that I can discover or insight or tool. Or, uh, so that's just been one, one way that I've found that is particularly helpful to think about. Um, and ev- even as I think about my two kids and how different they are, um, uh, the way I walk people into practices is generally around around that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. What yeah. I what I hear you, you have a comment? I just wanted to say that it could be the day. Mm-hmm. It could be the day, yeah. It could be the day, yeah. or it could be it's so unfamiliar mm-hmm. that it takes a time yeah. or two yeah. or three or four yeah. to really feel it. It's good. Well, and can I just say it quickly too? 
as someone who does trauma work, when I invite people to silence, silence is not helpful or healthy for people who, for some people who've experienced trauma. And so if I just beat the drum of, well, you just need to be silent for 20 minutes, that, that could be a space that opens up all sorts of terrifying feelings and thoughts and images. And so we've got to be, I think you're exactly right, really sensitive to where people are at, even day by day. When I uh, think about this role of guiding people in Alexio, or guiding people into silence, I'm reflective back of my many years as a worship leader, my insecurities of standing up in front of people with a guitar, hmm. saying, hey, we're going to do this. We're going to sing this to God. You're all welcome to come. To you know, how is it that a worship leader becomes hospitable? That's the inviting. But also represents from just the posture that this is where we're going. I'm not stopping to teach you. I'm just, it's in me. It's the, the contemplation. I am a person who knows that this is fruitful. So just the ways that I would say these words. One of the things I do as a director is I say, I just want to invite you to some silence before we start. Is that okay? Let's calm our hearts. Let's calm our minds. And so I'm trying with my whole being to communicate. And I intentionally, as a director, start talking slower as I talk with people. So it's interesting, in a church I served for a while, and I would watch other pastors one pastor was really great. He tried to approach Lexia Divina before every staff meeting or council meeting. Or mm. It was awkward for me because he would just rush in and like, <laughs> you know, so, so a lot of it just comes down to who's facilitating. And mm. as I had to grow as a worship leader to have this confidence mm. of how to welcome people, the same thing has to start happening with with those of us that are teaching these practices. And that goes back to what Sister was saying. If I'm a contemplative, if I'm doing these things, I know that it could just be a bad day. We're gonna, this is, this is real. I'm showing you this is real yeah. because of the way I'm welcoming you into this. And it takes, it takes a while. So, yeah. so th there has to be a, a sense of playfulness and a willingness to fail in this. Yeah. There will be people that just don't dig it and I'm going to fail as a leader. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm not going to make it safe, so I just got to keep trying. So thank you for your question. That's why we call it practice. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. huh. yeah I think that was um, what you were just sharing, Josh, kind of taps into the question that's been rumbling for me, or the, uh, the awareness, I guess, with your original premise about how does this fit into the broader life of a local congregation. Um, so I'm not sure if there's a direct question at the end of this. It might just be a springboard for you guys. Um, but you know, we've used some of this language of kind of Richard Rohr's first half, second half of life, um, Brueggemann's orientation, disorientation, reorientation, you know, done some work around James Fowler's work on stages of faith development. Um, and all of that kind of working on this premise that there comes a point in a person's spiritual growth and development where these types of practices and these types of questions become more alive in the gateway that they need mm -hmm. to kind of move into um, a new season or a new stage. And so I, I guess for me, just acknowledging that as a as I've tried to work more contemplative practices and more questions of disorientation or the dark night of the soul into the life of the church, 
that for some people that feels like a really liberating, mm. permission-giving, validating experience. And for others, that can feel threatening and even like a betrayal. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, I find myself in this conversation today just holding both of those realities together and yeah. saying, as I think about what does this look like in the life of the congregation, um, just acknowledging within myself, um, both of those things will be alive. You know, you can be doing the exact same practice, mm. the exact same question, and to some it feels liberating, and to some it feels like a betrayal. Yeah. That's so good. The, the, one of the big questions that I, I've wrestled with with a number of pastor friends is, how do we preach and lead people in all of those different spaces, mm. right? Uh, because I do think there, there was a time uh, a number of years ago where uh, I was in a community of folks who were talking about these things and it was kind of like, aren't we glad we've made it to the second half of life, you know, and we're preaching second <laughs> half of life sermons and that kind of stuff, which is, you know, it reminds me of what Thomas Merton said to James Finley when he was doing direction with, with James Finley back in the day when James Finley said, I think I've made it to St. Teresa of Avila's fifth mansion. You know, and Merton says, go feed the pigs, you know, like, come on, we're all beginners. Right. And so, but, but I think it, we do really have to be mindful of, of in, in our preaching, teaching, leading that people are in these different spaces and some are just starting out on the journey. And it, it, it is much more of a, when you're starting out much more discursive as St. Teresa might say, you know, and. You're, you're, the building blocks of faith are happening, right? And then the people in places of disorientation, well, words sometimes fail and it's, it's really dark. And there are different aspects of worship that mean more to, like communion sometimes means a lot more to someone in, in disorientation than it does, you know, the, the sermon, a really good sermon means something to you and if you're in a space of orientation. Communion, silence may mean a whole lot more in a space of disorientation. So I. It's a, I don't know, have an answer. It's just more like, I think as pastors, we have to wrestle with how do we hold everyone in these spaces without judgment? Like pe people are right where they are, you know? Yeah. And to recognize that, you know, it's a journey and um, sometimes you're on the mountaintop and hmm. contemplative practices are really easy and fruitful. And um, sometimes you're out in the desert mm -hmm. and it's, you're doing your best just to hang on. Mm. And I always think that that's part of that image of, of Jesus's ministry, of interacting with people and then spending long nights in prayer. Mm. For what? I mean, didn't he already have this figured out? <laughs> um, yeah. And yet that was his model mm -hmm. of the need for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I turn to the language of of the farmer so there's all kinds of soil there's all kinds of nutrients and additives so uh when i started seminary we were looking at wendell berry and one of my professors just said if you if you read wendell berry's writings you take out the word land put the word in heart you have the best pastoral theology of the 21st century so so just thinking about the the patience to, to just trust what, what I'm trying to hope we can map here is that there's just so much more rich soil mm. that's possible. That we've been, we've been using industrial farming techniques, <laughs> right? 
And we, we can return back to some permaculture, to some other experimentation, to go deeper into the soil, to make some more nutrient-rich fruit. So our time is up. So I want to thank you all, and especially want to thank Chuck and Sister Diane for being here. So as you can see, there is so much to talk about when it comes to this question of the role of contemplative spirituality and spiritual direction in the context of the local church. On one end, there is the question of why. What is the vital need? What is the state of the church and of our culture? Then there is the question of what. What are our definitions? What is contemplative spirituality? What is spiritual direction? And what is the local church parish? What is the history of these vocabularies in our different traditions? Then, of course, the how. How do we implement these practices? How do we make them accessible for the sake of inner transformation? And as you might have gathered by now, my personal hope is not just for individual transformation, but also for the renewal of the church. I found it very exciting that day in November to have this specific conversation with Sister Diane and Chuck DeGroat on the first day when Congress began the impeachment hearings. When I consider the renewal of the church, I'm imagining the ripple effects of transformation throughout our society. Spiritual direction and contemplation. To gather and talk about these things with wise generous, kind people. This is our subversive act of hope, a hope that God is near and is available to us to guide us and nourish us and help us listen to ourselves and to each other in ways that lead us to healing. So again, I want to offer a big thanks to Chuck DeGroat and Sister Diane for joining me in this conversation. I do invite you to visit Chuck's website, that's chuckdegroat.net, where you can find all the resources that he provides from his practices of counseling and spiritual direction, as well as video courses on contemplative prayer, some links to his retreats and seminars, as well as information on his books. Back in episode 28 of the Invitation Podcast, Chuck sat down with me to have a conversation about his book, Wholeheartedness, Busyness, Exhaustion, and Healing the Divided Life. And I'm also excited about Chuck's newest book, When Narcissism Comes to Church. Healing Your Community from Emotional and Spiritual Abuse. That book will be available in March of this year. And of course, Sister Diane offers spiritual direction and several classes through the Dominican Center. You can learn more about those resources by visiting dominicancenter.com. 
look specifically for the web pages on the Dominican Spirituality Center. And there you will see that the Dominican Sisters of Grand Rapids have a 34-acre property that not only serves as their home of residence, but also a worship space. It's also a conference and retreat facility as well. It's a, a gym hidden there on the east side of Grand Rapids. You can download a PDF catalog that lists all of the classes and learning programs that Sister Diane and others offer. These are weekend retreats and workshops, as well as the two-year certifications in spiritual companioning, as well as spiritual direction. In fact, I will be offering myself a couple workshops on contemplative prayer and spiritual practices in the local church. This will be at the Dominican Center in February, March, and April. These three sessions are for those of you who are looking to offer specific and practical resources and contemplative spirituality for your communities. You can find more about this workshop and other retreats that I facilitate by visiting invitationpodcast.org. Please do have a look at that website and subscribe to our newsletter so you can get updates of when new podcasts are available and when I'll be offering other classes and retreats. I thank you so much for listening to this conversation. Please send any questions or feedback to me at josh at invitationpodcast.org. I'd love to hear from you. It is a delight and an honor to serve you because as I serve you, I'm serving others in the church through you. May the Holy Spirit speak to you richly in your inner being to know that He sets apart the godly for himself. Till next time. Amen. <laughs>